Hello, welcome to some Derps Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about Grand Strategy and mana and things related therein. Um, but before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks at home what it is we uh, do on this podcast? Well, it's pretty simple. On this podcast, we like to talk about games. Um, for those of you who don't follow, like, I don't even, like, you know, like, Grand Strategy YouTube drama, or you know what I mean? Um, <laughs> oh, you know, Paradox inter- Plaza, maybe. Yeah, right. Just to, just to introduce this this topic a little bit, um, a new Paradox game has been released. Um, Paradox is the grand strategy studio behind Europa Universalis, which I've talked about a ton on the podcast. Crusader Kings, which we've talked about a ton on the podcast. Stellaris, um, Victoria, Hearts of Iron, right? Like they are well known, well beloved in terms of uh, getting grand strategy titles kind of off the ground. And they and their most recent title is called Imperator Rome. Um, it focuses on the Roman Empire and kind of the classical era, uh, you know, so anybody from, you know, Scipio Africanus to you know, Alexander the Great, right? Even, uh, like, into India, right? Like, it is a huge swath of territory that can be, you know, kind of conquered um, <clears throat> if you so desire, I guess. Well, uh, um, explicitly not exp- ex- Alexander the Great. It's the beginning date is 20 years after his death. But, you know, that's not... Oh, fuck, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, I guess you're right. Well, it shows how much I've been, you know, I know my history. Um, <laughs> the... <laughs> well, listen, the um, only reason but... I know is because in, like, the promotional material, they were, like, set 20 years after the death of Alexander the Great. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I knew it was not the Punic Wars, um, just, like, when I was playing my Rome game. Anyway, whatever, who cares? The, uh, the current conversation is all about what we are calling mana in the context of the grand strategy sort of like ecosystem of games because Imperator Rome has suffered quite a lot of criticism coming out of the gate uh, that hasn't received the same kind of like, I guess I would say like praise that other paradox games, um, you know, have. And so a lot of that, a lot of that criticism is really kind of narrowed, uh, narrowed down to and focusing on this idea of, you know, mana, right? Like an abstracted resource of points that you just kind of passively accumulate and they are this huge bottleneck of gameplay that that are the thing that allow you to do the thing that makes the game fun, essentially. Um, a big YouTube video got released on it talking all about how, you know, like the problems of mana got boiled down into Imperator Rome. I think Mango and I both agree about this video. Um, I was actually on the fence until he made a specific point and I was like, oh my god, yes, this. Um, but, uh, I don't know, yeah, is that is that a good enough introduction, you think? Uh, I, I, I think so. Um, is there anything else I want to add about it? Um, you know, obviously these conversations also work outside of just Imperator Rome, which is that's the one that's, you know, got the current, uh, what's it called? Popular ire, I guess is the right way to put it. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think that's, I, there's nothing else I think I want to add there. Do, do we want to maybe talk a little bit about the specific mechanic in Imperator just to, to make it a yeah, little bit so, more clear? So you've played more Imperator than I have, um, by quite a large, large margin, I imagine, um, so yeah. what what is your experience with the the mana the mana points in Imperator been like? Um, so 
it, so just so everybody knows, there's I think four uh, four or five different types of of mana. They're basically represent like diplomatic power, oratory power, um, military power, and religious power. Um, and you use them to do certain actions. Almost all actions have some sort of cost associated with them. And um, I think that the 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 common kind of refrain is that. Um, the other common criticism is there's not a lot to do in peacetime, and so it's just kind of like map painting with boring swaths in between. And I think that this kind of uh, definitely leads to that, leads to that, right? This 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 style of of uh, of gameplay, and I think it's especially hurt by the fact that you can like the game is kind of built around being paused, right? Like, mm-hmm. um, I think. I think the problem is less visible when the game's rolling because you don't kind of so, – so essentially what, what happens is, is you pause the game and because there's no – the only time component is generating the resource. You pause the game. You spend all your resources because it's better to spend it earlier than later, right? Because whatever follow-on effects are better to go on for longer. But then you have to mm-hmm. wait for the, the resource to reaccumulate. Um, and because of that, that makes the interwar periods – very boring because there's nothing to actively manage right it, it does feel very passive um i have made myself play a little bit with it rolling and it's better i don't think that's a good solution um but it does help only because you can't do every like it takes time for you to click buttons and so that that allevi- alleviates the problem a little bit but i think kind of the criticism holds pretty true um, yeah, the the big big thing that the point that got made in the video that immediately turned me around on this because for a long time I was watching that video um, in and I was thinking about it in terms of Europa Universalis, which also has kind of similar mechanics, but Europa Universalis is a game that I think is very good. Um, and the point in the video that really hit me was when he kind of talked about how the different tribes, the different empires, the different kingdoms all have the same accumulation rate of mana, essentially. And and there's not a lot of ways that you can really like interact with that. And to me, that was the most massive failing. That That is the problem that makes bad things, you know, like mana, essentially, versus some other resources like gold, right? Um, where it's about accumulating the resource in the appropriate, you know, but like you can do a lot of different things in order to affect the accumulation of that resource. This is why I kind of feel like we dodge some of these problems in... Um, this is this is why I feel like we dodged some of these problems in Europa Universalis because a lot of the game is tied into gold, and so even if you know, like even if there are pieces of the game that that utilize mana or whatever the case may be, um, you are always uh, you always have kind of like the option to really invest yourself in gold as a means of. Um, like really kind of controlling your own like resources and and their input. And I think that is the key detail, right? Which is having something that accumulates based on essentially like the the agency and the economy of the player. Yeah, no that that, that makes a lot of sense and in tying to this is the, the the argument that kind of made it um really salient for me is kind of the I guess it's the end effect of that which is 
Um, because it kind of accumulates, but you can spend it however you want. Um, you know, obviously that affects role-playing stuff, but the thing that really made it salient for me is that it means that you can kind of turn on a dime and that makes the game, makes the game less reactive, right? Like it's more kind of like you can do whatever you want, which can be fine, right? Like it's a very board game style of play. I think it makes it closer to say civilization, um, because that also deals with highly abstracts, like it tends more towards the board game end of the spectrum. Mm. But some of the things that I really like about Sacred Seder Kings 2 is that you have to, on the fly, deal with problems that, you know, you didn't necessarily uh, foresee happening, right? Like if you're attempting to get a claim on a, uh, on like a neighboring territory, like a Cassus Belly, you have to, you know, put your guy there and invest the time and hope that the Cassius belly pops. Now that can be frustrating. And that's, you know, I've got opinions on, 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 uh, where I think that system isn't perfect. Mm. Um, but I do think it's, uh, uh, a better system than this one because, you know, I've had situations where I was trying to take a piece of territory, um, you know, it next to me, but then it gets taken over by a different foreign power one that I can't really screw with. So I have to reassign my guy and that time is wasted, but I had to react to that. Right. And I feel like that makes CK two a richer experience. It always feels like you're trying to juggle a bunch of things. That is also the same way that it works in Europa Universalis, right? Like there is a big cooldown if you pull somebody from a mission early. So you don't have that same sort of ability to kind of like recoup your losses in the way that um, Imperator uh, allows you to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, because it's not even it, – it's, it's not recouping losses because there's no loss, right? Like you only make – that is, yeah, like, I guess that's true. <laughs> the, the, the only thing you, you invest your your mana at the time that you want to gain the Cass's belly, and um, there's no reason to ever do that. Like any at any time other than right before you want to declare war, which is uh-huh. um, like I guess maybe you could you could uh, you could fix this a little bit by by like having the Cass's belly need to mature. Like it, it takes thirty days, I think, for the Cass's belly to to go into effect when you purchase it. But that's not nearly enough time, right? Like, I think you need, like, like you, you if you hit the button and then it was guaranteed but it took a while, maybe that could work or or something like that. Because, um, you know, I, I feel like that mechanic worked better with um, integration. Um, so uh, one of the other mechanics in Roman Imperator is... Uh, you can have various allies, and one of the ally statuses is uh, basically a client state. Um, and if you have, if you, they have good enough opinion of you, you can spend a bunch of mana um, to kind of integrate them into your empire and make them instead of a client state, just a a part of your empire. Um, and I found that um, you know the early ones are kind of inside your borders, so it's not too big a deal, but I found that those worked out for me fairly like like that that was a more rewarding experience because it takes like like I think like five years of in-game time to to actually integrate uh those uh the, those smaller states. And so during that time, right, like the clock's ticking up, but you know, people can declare wars. It doesn't work super great because but because they are already a client state, like there's already a lot of war deterrent there in the first place, right? No one wants to fuck with Rome um, uh, if they're smaller, and so they're or if they do want to fuck with Rome, they're probably not going to 
fucked with the client state, but definitely has um, kind of pieces of that there, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, and and I was thinking about this in terms because so the the other piece of this is I've been playing I've racked up like fifty hours of Total War in the last like three weeks since the release of the expansion, and some of the things that I was hearing are things that feature in Total War, right? So for instance, something that you can do is um, cancel construction on a building if the building is about to be attacked, right? Which is just like. It, it's kind of like a good skill thing to do, right? If you have, you know, a settlement that's vulnerable and there's an enemy army approaching, you don't want to build stuff in that settlement because you're just going to lose the gold when the enemy comes in and takes the settlement or raises it or sacks it or whatever they do, right? Um, and that has the same kind of, like, thing, right, of, like, the opportunity cost. Like, I can just, well, I can start building this building, and if it completes, that's great. If it doesn't complete, I can pull it. But I feel like because basically all of the resources in Total War Warhammer boil down to that kind of, like, player agency question, right? Like, you need to build a good economy in order to get gold, right? Or you need to be successfully running around, winning battles, sacking settlements, all of that kind of thing. Um, that makes the mana problem essentially just disappear because all of a sudden you are managing, like, a resource that you have a lot of power and control over, right? Rather than, you know... Um, kind of refilling like refill and then the other piece of this is that gold itself is such like a wide resource that applies to so many different things like you can invest gold militarily or you can invest gold in infrastructure and economy or in defense of your buildings or in you know like whatever unit producing buildings whatever the case may be right you can you can um use gold to do any and all of these myriad things i feel like that has a that, that has a better effect on it than something like the administrator, or I think they call it auditory power, um, which only has a couple of select uses, right? You don't really have all that much to do with religion, according to the video, besides just, like, picking a buff for the next five years, for yeah. instance. Yeah, no, it's, I mean, making it making the resources more useful would definitely help with the problem, but it still kind of is underpined by these by some of these more fundamental problems of kind of rate being mostly passive and uh uh and and kind of this you know lack of investment stuff but i, th I the, the total war comparison is interesting because i think you've got two fundamental differences there um uh the first one i think which is the less interesting one is that um in total war the empire management level is less um it's it's less uh, important and it's also less it, it's it's less complex um, mm. than in uh, than both in CK two and just kind of on a game design level is it is I feel like while it's while it's obviously a, a big important part of the game it's it's less kind of like it's less a nitty gritty thing mm. because the main attraction of the Total War games and kind of the big piece of Total War games are the live battles that you control right. um, that you control you know manually and those have you know the, the those have their own kind of tactical complexity to them, whereas uh, you know Imperator doesn't really. Um, it's you know it's it's still got a bunch of variables you can play around with, but it doesn't have that that, that kind of skill based aspect to it. Um, yeah, and yeah, so, definitely. 
And so I, I think that you can, you might even make the claim that like Total War has a similar type of, you know, time between wars aren't as interesting as times during war, but that's fine because that's, you know, the name of the game is Total War, right? So yeah. Um, yeah, I also think that the other piece of it is that Total War, you know, like there are a lot of kind of like stop gaps to um, warring and expansion and stuff like that in order to kind of like keep the... You know, like the balance of the game going for Imperator and also for Europa Universalis and CK2, right? Like aggressive expansion. Well, I actually don't think aggressive expansion exists in CK2, but it exists in Europa. Um, and it also exists in Imperator Rome. Total War doesn't have any of those kind. You know, like, for instance, you don't have to worry about a Cassus Belly or really kind of anything because you can just declare war on somebody. And, th- and there are reasons that you might not, right? Um, in the sense of like, you know, in the same way that you can declare a uh, a kind of undecipherable war or whatever without a Cassus Belly in Imperator and suffer kind of huge consequences, you can do the exact same thing in Total War, and I would argue that there are a lot less consequences to that because you really only take a diplomacy hit. Um, but, like, because those things are easier to do and you don't really need to expend a lot of resources in order to do them, they are also much less of a pain point than in Imperator, where you do have to invest, like, resources in them over time. I, I do think that both games are strategic, right? Like, a big part of the video is talking about the definition of strategy and the difference between, like, a tactics game and a strategy game. And I think Total War does do a very good job of blending you know, like, the tactics of the of the instanced battles with the strategy of, you know, moving your armies around or choosing what buildings to build when or where to place, you know, like, all of those different kinds of things. Um, but they are not focused specifically on the diplomacy aspect of it. All of the strategy in Total War basically boils down to armies, right? Right. And what is your composition going to look like and what characters, you know, like, what, what lore of magic are you going to put into this army? And all that kind of thing. And these are strategic decisions that are built to pay off later. Like, oh, I want to go to war with Bretonia. I'm going to create a flagship army with my top-level units. And they're all going to be anti-large. Because Bretonia has really powerful cavalry and their infantry is god-awful. So I'm just not going to give a shit about having strong infantry. I just want anti-large to nuke their cavalry every time. And that's a strategic decision that is expected to pay off over the next, you know, 20 turns of running through, like, rampaging through Bretonia, kicking the shit out of Lou and Leon Kerr, right? Um, but that is a strategic decision that is all boiled into, like, the military aspect of the game. The strategic decision of, you know, do I declare war on Lou and Leon Kerr, you know, that, that's kind of just secondary to the rest of this. Right. right? Um, because the diplomacy is not the focus. And I think diplomacy, you know, a lot of people argue diplomacy systems should be better in Total War, and I broadly agree. I think that there is more that they could do with diplomacy. But one of the things that is nice about it is they get out of their own way, right? The thing that makes the game fun is running around with big armies and battling people, right? And they don't have anything in the diplomacy to stop you from engaging in that system, right? Almost every game of Total War, you will be at war with one faction or another for the majority of the game. I don't know that there's a single game of Total War I've ever played where I have universally been at peace. Yeah, no, that that, that makes perfect sense. Um, I think you're absolutely. I think you're absolutely right. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out, uh, which is more a hard mechanical difference, and I'm curious curious to think how your take on this because. Uh, 
Uh, the other big difference is, is that the strategy level for uh, Total War is turn-based. Um, and so I think that that makes... I feel like that makes mana more acceptable just because it's uh, just kind of the unitariness of it, right? Like you, you every everybody's kind of, how do I put this? Be- because of the way that the time flows, one, it's harder to do a less mana-based system, right? Like there, there's less continuous mm-hmm. stuff happening, so it's it's harder to kind of make it work over on, on those terms. But also because like, because everybody kind of has an opportunity to kind of f- respond in turn, right, and react to everything that's happening, I feel like it lessens the blow, right? Like it's it, it still has the problem of you know you can kind of, you've got this abstracted effort that can turn on a dime in purpose, right? Mm-hmm. You were building up to like get this one thing, um, but uh, but you ultimately use it on another. Um, you know, maybe, maybe it just doesn't get used in this fashion. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking about it, right? Like Total War and uh, and Civilization were my other points of points of reference, right? Like, even though they've got like guaranteed ends, it's not like you know chance to grant cast a spell or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, in like Civilization, you're building towards specific technology. You can't turn on a do- like you know if you ignored sailing and all of a sudden you're getting attacked from the sea. It's not like you can instantly turn around and get those texts you have um you have to kind of like fill those progress bars yeah i mean Uh, and the same thing is true you know total war obviously also has research but the same thing is true with you know armies or making moves on the campaign map right like i've definitely done that thing where you know i overextend with one army nab a settlement and immediately realize that i'm now within attacking range from like two enemy armies and i'm gonna get wrecked the next turn that you know that kind of thing happens and you invent you're like the the investment there are like the strategic moves around the map if that makes sense where you can't just like immediately pivot out of uh like out of those kinds of bad decisions um, and there is that like need to kind of be like careful and to have agents and doing reconnaissance in X Y Z, right? Yeah, no, I, uh, absolutely, and 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 kind of the 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 equivalent the, the actions that kind of fall into this criticism in Imperator don't have those kind of aspects, right? Like a lot of them are instant in execution and also like instant in effect and kind mm-hmm. of like exist in that unitary time. Like one of the examples is bribing a uh another politician to make them more loyal right that costs some amount of oratory power i believe it is um but their score like the loyalty immediately goes up you immediately lose the oratory and it's not like it's not like you know that's an investment that gets like you know in in little ways it could be right like they could die or something i guess but it's it's much less likely to have those kind of implications Mm. and you don't need to spend it it's not like you need to spend it before they're disloyal. You already, you know, you, you spend it as they're becoming disloyal, and uh, and so like if if they had been, it, it's not like you spent it when they were fairly loyal, and then something happened that would have made them loyal anyway. It's a waste or whatever, which kind of gets into this, right? And you you know should have yeah. been allocated otherwise. And then the and well, and then the other thing is that that's actually something that Total War literally does, where that you know like you'll get these things called loyalty crises for certain certain factions like the dark elves the skaven and the vampire coast all have loyalty on generals right um so if your general's loyalty gets low he will declare 
civil he will rebel against you and start attacking your own settlements and he'll try and make his own like empire or kind of whatever um the the loyalty what there are like loyalty crises that pop up where it's like do you reward this player do you like condemn them you know how do you how do you want to you know how do you want to deal with this disloyal general sort of thing um and the answer to when you want to provoke them Right, like when you want to be like, you know what, I want whatever immediate benefit, I don't give a fuck about their loyalty. It's never their loyalty drops by 10 points. It is their loyalty has a chance to drop by two points every turn for the next 15 turns, right? So like it is a tick rate down that you can combat and manage, but it's not all at once. And it's not, and so like that lack of an immediate effect, I feel like is a, is like a real, um, it, it's it, that's part of the strategy. It lets you plan around and say, okay, well, if this if this general is now all of a sudden on a downward spiral to disloyalty, I'm gonna get him out of you know wherever he is, like my the the heartland of my empire, and I'm gonna go put him on the fringes where my best defended settlements are, or I'm gonna go park him right next to fucking you know what I mean. I'm gonna go park him next to Malakith, and as soon as he goes disloyal, Malakith can just like stack wipe him, sort of thing. Um, and those are I feel like those are the kinds of strategic decisions that like drawing this stuff out gives you. Um, and the kind of strategic decisions that everything being instant doesn't uh, afford you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I you know, I, I, I don't have, I think I, I can disagree with you on there. Um, so the, but the interesting thing, so we've been talking a lot about it's like, like total war, obviously, because I've been playing so much of it. But the other thing that I kept thinking about is I was like, paradox has already solved this problem they have a game that has a whole bunch of abstracted resources that are definitively not mana based. And that game is Stellaris, right? Where there is basically, there is one uh, resource called influence that has a pretty hard tick, but even with influence, you can control it by doing a variety of different kind of factors. But for the most part, right? Like all of the resources that you are generating and spending, right? Alloys, minerals, energy um all the other uh, three different types of science or whatever the more advanced you know like there are a couple of more advanced materials like nanotech or kind of like whatever else it is um those are all directly controllable by the player and the kind of like the basis of the interwar period of the game right like interwar stellaris is made up of you running around putting mining stations on shit right and like upgrading your planets and colonizing new planets so that you can put buildings on them so you can staff those buildings with employees and you know and like and stuff like that um and so i thought it was really kind of a weird step backwards that like they have so thoroughly solved this kind of like interwar period kind of like mechanic by by adding in essentially a lot of resource allocation to those you know like to those factors but then not utilized that you know like th those kinds of mechanics in a new setting and in a new game do you know what i mean because i feel like it wouldn't be that hard to imagine a version of imperator where you have to kind of like do some hard management around you know like your farms and the food that you are producing right or you know like the iron that's coming out of your mines and you can't make legionaries without the iron to forge their swords or whatever right like that's like that's 
that's not even Stellaris, right? That's Hearts of Iron is, is that kind of thing. And so in a certain sense, I guess I've just made the argument that they have not one but two different games that have entirely, you know, like simulated economies that avoid the mana problem entirely by putting the generation of these resources directly in the player's hands, and they didn't go with either of them. Yeah, no, it's 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 a little weird because like, you know, there is that there is that iron requirement there's literally an iron requirement to make heavy infantry but you just have to have access to iron which you know if you're rome you've got it in your capital and mm. uh you can trade for it otherwise um and then i think that's a neat mechanic but it, it, it ultimately doesn't matter so much um especially because it's, it's it's the you know kind of if you have access to iron you can make as many heavy infantry as you want you just need to have access to iron um and I, I think I think you're ultimately right. I, th- this this is a criticism that's been leveled at the game that I think is fairly fair. Is you know the 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 designer said that he wanted to take all the best elements from the other Stellaris or the other Paradox games rather, and kind of integrate them. But it ended up feeling kind of like it was a it was like a half done job, right? Like that um, that that they took kind of like the surface level of all these things, but didn't really go into the depth that make them great. Um, the one I'm the most familiar with is is the character stuff from CK2, and there's a little bit of character stuff on all your families, but I find myself not really caring at all about any of that. Um, it just it feels very incidental, right? It's, it's you know it's it's not like you know oh they've got a stat and you know maybe that's important for which general I I apply where, um, but most of the time it can be safely ignored, which is uh, not not a great place to be, especially coming from the richness that you get out of it with CK2. Um, so may, maybe the answer is just kind of, um, you know, they didn't go hard enough. Um, and the really cynical part of me also wants to agree with the criticism that, you know, I'm sure this will be a good game in two years when they've released, you know, $80 worth of DLC um, that flushes out all of these systems, which which I think is unfortunate, but... Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where this is, this kind of, like, harkens back to our Marxism, uh, you know, like, in games episode a little bit. But, like, I really don't want to say the thing where it's like, oh, well, they released a kind of bare-bones game so that they can add in the DLC, you know, like, to really flush things out later. But it does sort of feel like that, doesn't it? Yeah, like, and, and you, know? you know, I would feel less bad about doing it if this wasn't a thing that, like, Paradox has not always released, you know, very stripped-down games um, and then filled them with DC. They've, you know, I don't want to make it sound like that because they usually release good games and then build on top of them. But you can see, like, the sheer amount of DLC they have for their other games, you could kind of see this coming. And maybe the answer is even, like, you know, this isn't a terrible game because it's not. It's just you know not a a great one. It's just you know when you have when all of your other games are very fleshed out and you've got like four or five products in the running alongside Imperator. Imperator is gonna feel a little bit naked by comparison as like by necessity. Mm-hmm. They can't. You can't release them like. I shudder to think whenever CK3 comes out, like what that game is going to look like because it would be unreasonable to ask them. Um, for it to be like at the same level of content that CK2 is at, um, just because there's so much there. But mm-hmm. at that point, why leave CK2? Right? Um, yeah. 
Yeah, and one one of the things that I like about CK2's DLC, I actually think like this is one of the things that I think makes Paradox DLC typically pretty good, right? Which is that like it is not so much the you know it's not so much that like the base game is like empty or whatever, but like they add in kind of like alternate play styles or progression paths or something kind of along those lines as time goes on, right? Like, so for instance, with the the Hearts of Iron 4, there's a DLC called Waking the Tiger that is all about China. And it is focusing specifically on China being the, um, like, like it is the DLC for all of the, you know, like all of the China-centric national focuses, and it's there for so that you play China, it is not there so that you play America or the UK, right? Like or or Japan. Those games are all, you know, basically pretty fleshed out at this point. Um, but I just feel like I, I just feel like there's something a little bit different about the way that people have been talking about Imperator, where you know it does kind of feel like they got the the skimpy, you know, like the skimpy kind of experience. Yeah, and. The, the other part of this, too, is this remains to be seen, but Paradox also always releases a hefty patch that goes to everybody along. Like, it's mm-hmm. generally considered part of the expansion, but it, it is a patch that that adds in a good chunk of the features that kind of come with the expansion that everybody gets, even if you don't purchase the expansion. Um, and uh, at that point, I think it's a... It's a criticism that's like similar, but of uh, what I say, almost like a different, like shade, right? Like it, which is kind of more along the you know this game is actually an early access criticism that we see level deck games, because um, mm-hmm. and you know this game, this game doesn't have a lot of technical issues at least that I've seen. Right? There's mixed reports about how buggy the game is itself, but it doesn't seem bad to me at all. But on the kind of like we released it into full release, but it's not really feature complete. Um, th- th- this this is a weird, I think, wider conversation about the nature of, say, games as a service and, game, and you know, the, the nature of the modern game's life cycle, right? Because, yeah. like, like... You know, it's one of those things where if you're expecting people to put a thousand hours into CK2 or something, you do kind of just have to continually iterate over and over and over again. Um, and re- be releasing the DLC in order to keep that dev cycle up, right? Like, you know, I was talking about this with somebody about Overwatch um, and and the presence of loot boxes in Overwatch, where it's like, you know, you kind of can't expect them to make a game and continue creating content for it and maps and heroes and stuff like that. Um, just based off of the $40 that you paid in 2016, right like it just takes more time and money than that and so i feel like the the kind of constant dlc cycle is the way that paradox answers that problem where okay you're going to pay your upfront cost that's fine um and now you're going to be getting a whole bunch of updates over you know like you're going to get a whole bunch of updates over time and those updates will you, you will buy into them to keep the development cycle going do you know what i mean yeah yeah, no, I, 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 I absolutely, I absolutely agree with that. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm just thinking about this. Right, there are th- approximately two to three expansions per year for, um, for CK2 over, you know, released in 2012. Um, 
and so there's there's been a lot of DLC, right? They haven't released any this year, and they only released one in 2018. Um, but uh, like it it almost uh, seems to me like a this this is a a weird version of like a subscription fee, right? Or like an expansion mm-hmm. pass that Destiny does, right? Like you know, would this be different if you know these these come out at approximately twenty dollars? If you know. They were like, you know, this year the expansion pass is $30 like Destiny does. And you get all the content and it just kind of rolls over and over. It would have to be more expensive in order for this to make sense. It would have to be like 40 to 60 a year. Um, but I think it probably works out to 30 over. And, you know, this is this is a different version of that because, um, you know, you you pay per expansion. You don't need all of them. Um, uh, but it's kind of like half moved its way into the games as a service model, which I think is, is, is especially right now, there's been a recent conversation about games as a service. Um, that's been, uh, it's kind of like peaked, I think like a couple of weeks ago. Um, but, uh, game as a service being kind of like, a becoming a negative buzzword. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting to see kind of it, it move in that direction. Cause, cause I'd almost say that like, Paradox has kind of always been this way, and I find it hard to to fault them because it's it, you know they've got they've got the whole suite right like they've got the expansion pass plus they've got the cosmetic DLC that's much cheaper that you know you don't really have to get um, yeah um yeah the interesting thing is that like you know compared to myself like three years ago I feel like I would have said I feel like we just like think about paradox in different terms paradox was like a small indie game publisher it felt like you know they weren't really and we knew about like like i knew about victoria and i knew about hearts of iron in a in an abstract sense right like i had heard it around but i never like touched any of these games and then all of a sudden i kind of like broke through that wall with ck2 and with europa universalis and like you know, we we want to give them the benefit of the doubt, but they do need to like like they do need to make money. And to a certain extent, I sort of think putting these games in that si- sort of life. This is something I was thinking about, right? Where when we talk about kind of the proliferation of the lifestyle kind of games, we do talk about them almost universally in terms of sort of the MMO variety. But when I think about the kinds of games that I end up playing a whole bunch. A lot of them are these grand strategy sandbox kinds of games because you can create such a different and unique experience sort of every time. It has almost the same, like, appeal as a roguelike in a way where, like, no playthrough is the same. But, like, you are specifically designing around that, right? Because now, you know, you any, any, you know, any playthrough of the high... The High Elves does not feel like any playthrough of the Dark Elves, right? And playing the High Elves as, you know, Teclis starting in the jungle, or as Alithanar starting deep or starting deep in, you know, Dark Elf territory, right? Like those two games aren't the same. And so you have this immense, immense replayability that allows you to create a lifestyle game out of grand strategy games that is that is something that is much, much harder to find, it seems, in any of these other you know like in any of these other kind of more more conventional titles right like destiny or like anthem and i imagine that a lot of that comes down to you know just like the cost associated with developing these is kind of like fundamentally different but i do sort of wonder if the reason that we see people putting in right like my 
my Total War Warhammer just ticked over 450 hours, right? I've spent 450 hours playing this one individual game. And so it is basically definitionally a lifestyle game, but we don't think about it in those same sorts of terms. Do you know what I mean? No, absolutely. And, I th- and you know, if you wanted to make an argument that, you know, this is fundamentally different and it's less, ex- you know, like the reason that we're allowed to say to, you know, Paradox, like, stop doing that is because, you know, part of the justification on the big multiplayer games is they're paying for service space, right? Like, Paradox is, mo- you know, or these strategy games are mostly single player experiences. Mm-hmm. And when they're multiplayer experiences, they're not played on a, uh, on, you know, like a somebody else, you know, on, on, on uh, the company's hardware, they're they're hosted on a on a player's machine, and you know they just do the connections there. Especially with like turn based games, it doesn't you know shoddy connections don't matter so much, right? Because uh, everything's kind of in unitary measurements anyway. Um, and with the real time stuff, it's still it's it's a problem, but it works out better. Cause it's you know it's it's less twitchy, obviously. Um, and so I, I think that's the the biggest argument uh, against it. Um, but I, I definitely see your point. I definitely think kind of from a philosophical level, it makes, you're making a lot of sense. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, and I do sort of wonder if like the Jim Sterlings of the world might, you know, pick up on some of this kind of drama. I always feel like the, you know, like the paradox Plaza grand strategy Forex kind of players, um, are uh, like a niche that nobody really ends up talking. Like, I guess the Warriors of Chaos DLC from the original Total War Warhammer kind of broke through, and that was like 2015 or something. Um, but for the most part, right, like, we don't really talk about, you know, like, we don't really, like, talk about any of these sorts of big problems um, with, you know, like, the grand strategy titles in the same way that we talk about them with the Anthems, the Destinies, the, you know, the World of Warcrafts of the world. And I sort of wonder, you know, maybe maybe it's because, like, these games are inherently single-player, um, because the, the, like, it kind of creates a disconnect, whereas the other games are, like, multiplayer, and you have this urge to kind of, like, you know... I don't know, go out and, and join the subreddit. Man, I don't know. It's a tough thing to, to answer. You know, uh, part of it, and this is this is very amusing to me, is that under, under kind of like the exploitative business models kind of uh, context, right? Like you don't have kids going and stealing their mom's credit card so they can go like you know, crusade on Jerusalem, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not like anybody's going to buy holy – like my kid spent $300 on – pagan rights or whatever right like um also it's very kind of finite right like um uh the things with like the deep more exploitative loot practices are either loot boxes or they're like rotating skins that cost a lot of money right with Mm. like say Fortnite. with this even if even if you're going for like the the uh the cosmetic dlc it's like five dollars a pop and there's only so much of it um and again, it's not the type of thing that like little Timmy's going to steal uh, his mom's credit card for to to do. So I, I think that's part of why it doesn't bubble up as much. Um, it's very easy, like because they are so good about uh, about releasing the big patches too. It's also very easy to ignore, right? Like it, it's not like say you know Fortnite. If you don't have a skin, you can't control. You can't even control like what your base character looks like, right? It's randomized. Um, and so 
there's really these kind of like driving bits to get you to to get a skin where it's like you know increased number of unit portraits are nice but they're not like you know they're, they're not fundamental in any in any kind of way um i also think that like you know there's like if we're ever getting there we're kind of at the at the very front end of it right like um it's not it is not bad right like it's not bad yet right like you could very easily excuse this as like a misstep in development rather than being you know this this, this you know frankly kind of conspiratorial idea that imperator rome was released in a in a in a bad state to to fuel dlc sales right if ck3 is like this right like it's got a little bit more legs right um mm-hmm. and uh and you know it's especially if it's like you know, if it's ck3 or eu5 right like that has these problems you get you know, you can look at it and see like see the problem th- this is definitely a business problem rather than say like a design problem because right? imperator is also coming back from like there was europa universalis rome but that's like ancient i think um maybe vicky three falls into this kind of like could be a could be a, a an indication of a problem category um i think it's much i think it's it, it it makes sense to just call this a a bad design choice um and the fact that it can be fixed with dlc can in some way like you know in a lot of ways should be seen as a positive rather than as a uh as a negative especially if i i think what it'll come down to is how much of it is fixed for free and how much mm. of this is like you know necessary that we that we get the uh that, that you buy the the dlc pack um, and if it's a lot of free stuff, I think people will, will look at it a lot more favorably. You know, they do right by it. You know, there's still that kind of early access complaint, but I don't think it's it's nearly as big a deal. Yeah, yeah. I you know, I love these strategy games, and I think I'm going to keep loving these strategy games, um, especially because like you know, I talked a lot about how I feel like Stellaris made a big turn. Well, turnaround is kind of the, Stellaris launched and was kind of just fine. I feel like, and then it got like good with a couple of pieces of dlc and and i really loathe it when people say you know like when people say the thing like oh like it's an unfinished like game or whatever it's like well no it's clearly just finished but it just doesn't have as much as it could have you know and that's gonna kind of like always be universally true and it's not really like a fair standard to kind of apply um but like in a certain sense, I do think that is a difference that requires, you know, uh, that that requires a certain amount of kind of like interrogation, right? If Imperator Rome has launched in such a capacity that playing the game during peacetime is not really all that fun or rewarding, that's a pretty major problem to the, you know, like to, yeah. to the game. And if we say, oh, well, it can be fixed with DLC, you know, okay, that's fine. Right, but like it is, it it that can't kind of like wipe away. Um, sure, yeah. And, and I, I think the difference there is like, you know, it's still bad. But how much of it do you want to call it like an honest misstep? Right, like we thought yeah. this would be good and it wasn't. Right, like mm-hmm. that that happens. Right, and how much of it is you know, and then we'll get their money later down the line when we make the game good. And you know, I don't think it's ever exactly. You know, I don't think it's. It, it is rarely ever the worst version of that. 
Um, but I think you can kind of, it's, it's a gradient, right? Like it would not surprise me if there's like a level of like, well, this isn't great, but we're going to, you know, at the very least patch it down the line. So it's acceptable for now. Um, and that's not, that's not a great attitude, but I think it's, it's becoming more of the norm, right? Like mm-hmm. you, know, you can go all the way back to like, Oh, every NES game released was, it was like nearly bug free because it had to be, and you didn't have those day one patches and, you know. And back in my day, games were finished when they came out, um, you know, type of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, kind of actually along those lines, because this was in the mix of some of the Imperator criticism. Um, Stellaris had an update that I, uh, where they got rid of that kind of three types of light speed travel thing, correct? Right? That was mm-hmm. like a big update. Yeah, and, I, I'm actually sad about that because I really did enjoy the three different kinds of light speed. But yeah, they did update that. So, so that patch in particular, I have seen it, you know, like in the kind of conversations about Imperator, it was like a mixed reaction to that in particular. Oh, I see. And people are referencing to that patch. They're going to Stellaris 2.1 it or whatever. Yeah. And and I was curious as to to your take on that whole patch because the other comparison I made to that patch was to Star Wars Galaxy, uh, Galaxies, where they kind of fundamentally changed the game from... Uh, this weird sandbox MMO that was very popular with its niche, but was mm. not like broad appealing. They made it into kind of a, a more traditional theme park MMO that nobody liked. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I you know, uh, I have a soft spot. This is this actually kind of goes into a bigger problem that I have sort of with like um, some of these games, which is like the water always finds a crack problem. So okay, so for instance. Uh, just to use Total War as, like, an anchor. Um, so Ikit Claw just came out, the, Sca- the new Skaven Legendary Lord, and he has access to a feature called the Workshop, right? The Forbidden Workshop, where you can spend a new resource that you accumulate. Sometimes after a battle, you'll get one, right? So, like, maybe there's, a, like, a 25% chance after you win a battle that you will accumulate one warp fuel. Um, and a couple of food, which is just, like, a Skaven resource that's been around forever, um, to buy, like, an upgrade for your tech units, because they could claw this warlock engineer, and so he makes your doom flayers, your doom wheels, you know, like, the rattling gun, he makes all of these units better. Um, and so... There's been a lot of criticism because the Forbidden Workshop is really powerful, right? It adds just insane power boost to some of these units. Um, and and people look at that and they say, well, why the fuck would I ever play Skrulk or Queek Undertaker or Tretch Craven Tail, right? When I could just play Ikit Claw and just, like, could, like, turbo nuke everybody, right? Um... And there's kind of two answers to that. One of them is sort of like the in-game answer, where which is, yes, the Forbidden Workshop is very powerful, but it also takes a long time to unlock because you have to generate large amounts of warp fuel and large amounts of food in order to, you know, like, in order to uh, farm it up, right? Um, which leads into the, the kind of second criticism, which is that it is too easy to max out the warp fuel, the the forbidden workshop by farming rebellions in your own territory. Uh, this is a mechanic that's been in the in the game for a long time, but it's essentially you set your own um, you set your own armies to raid your own territory, and what they will do is they will generate rebellion armies because you'll be tanking your own public order all the way to the you know like all the way to the floor. So. You're raiding your own territory, a rebellion spawns, you pop out of raid stance, kill the rebellion, get some food, get some warp fuel maybe, 
and then go back into rating, right? And so this is this is the idea that you, oh, it's so easy to max out, you know, the forbidden workshop because all you need to do is do like rebellion farming. Well, rebellion farming is like pretty clearly like not not quite an exploit in a you know like in an MMO sense, but it's cheesing, right? Like it is a cheese tactic, and it is the kind of tactic that you know you can do it if you want to be like we all probably would agree that that is the most efficient way to play the game, right? You re- you rebellion, you take over a couple of places, rebellion farm in them really hardcore for the next 20 or 30 turns, max out the, you know, max out the forbidden workshop, and then boom, now you're rolling over the place with rattling guns with, like, endless drum and just, like, ridiculous damage and abilities and stuff like that. But the more traditional way to play is, you know, you don't cheese, and you just play the game normally, and it takes you a long time to accumulate the warp fuel, and, you know, you're allocating your food a certain sort of way in order to unlock all of the pieces of the Forbidden Workshop, and that's, you know, like, that's a fine, that's a normal sort of thing. And so there, I feel like with Stellaris, that exact same problem cropped up with the Lightspeed Travel. One of them which I can't quite remember which one, one of them was just deemed to be like the most absolute powerful one and everybody always took it. Nobody ever took whatever the other two were. I can't remember what they were. Um, And so the game designers were kind of like, well, and so people were like, well, this is so boring because, you know, whatever it was, Hyperlanes is so much more powerful than Warp Gates or whatever it is. Um, And eventually the designers kind of bowed to that and they said, you know what? You start the game with, Hyperlanes, which I guess means it wasn't the most powerful. You start the, the the game with Hyperlanes, but over time you can unlock the other two, um, where you, which which allows you you know you can now build warp gates and you can now build you know do the build engines into your do things that do the other one. I can't even remember what that one was called. That that was um, like that that was a free flying right. Like you could you could go wherever you didn't you could go wherever you wanted to but you had like a max radius that you could go in yeah oh yeah and it took forever right yeah, yeah. um and so and so they basically just layered it to be like a um they layered it to kind of be like a progression system though it actually doesn't quite work that way it's mostly hyperlanes um so you know, so yeah, so that's why I kind of feel like it's like a, you know, a water will always sort of find the crack. Like people will optimize the fun out of the game given the opportunity to. And the thing that I find insane about this is that this isn't even a multiplayer game, right? Like you can't play these games multiplayer. And I do think that there is a certain amount of like, you know, I know Hoi 4 actually has a pretty robust multiplayer community. Um, and so, okay, balance for those guys' sakes make a lot of sense. Um, but like, you know, there's not a huge multiplayer campaign audience for Total War Warhammer. And so, like, it get claw having the, like, this forbidden workshop and the ability to make himself and his faction super powerful by cheesing the rebellion mechanics or whatever is just kind of, like, not a problem. It's kind of like if somebody were to say about, like, you know, like, Imperator or, like, you're... Right, like, why is Rome easier than... Rome is so much easier than Macedon, right? Like, you know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing. Because it's a single-player game and there are asymmetric starts, uh, you know, like, sometimes you will choose Queek Headtaker because, you know, you want a challenge. Queek has one of the hardest starts in the game. 
Um, it is like really tough to get going and get into a good position from a campaign perspective with Queek. Uh, in the same way that you know, it's tough to get going and get into you know, like any as of the, Iceland. the yeah, like as Iceland or any of the uh, the Holy Roman Empire states in EU four can be a huge yeah. pain. You know, like there are challenging like count. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Like there are really challenging starts, and that's part of the fun. And I feel like the presence of less challenging starts shouldn't really get in the way of that. Um, and see, I would see, be a little bit sad to see, like, balance around that in a way. This is, this is I think, a little weird because um, I think with Total War there's an expectation that the all the sides are roughly balanced-ish. Right, like this is part and parcel of the paradox formula, which doesn't it, it doesn't apply to Stellaris specifically because Stellaris plays like a normal, you know, like a more typical strategy game, right? Like a civilization or whatever, mm-hmm. where the map's kind of randomized and you're playing as like somebody who's got equal footing with a lot of the other, uh, with all the other kind of player races, um, and because of that, uh, you're you're just kind of like going for it. Um, uh, and so I, I think that's kind of why that leaks in there is because you know you don't expect to have a situation where you're going to lose as uh, or, or where your, your 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 choice is going to make your life harder in total war even though that that makes sense when when you put it that way I think I think it's just kind of like an expected attitude thing yeah. right like like uh, nobody expe- like you know yeah there's stronger civs in civilization but nobody expects to like start as like you know, the British, like, you know, when you're starting against the British Empire and, um, I don't know, say, like, one of the smaller countries that, that, uh, that, that exists, like the Polynesians, right? No one expects in civilization that, you know, the British Empire are going to be dominant in, like, the industrial age while the Polynesians have kind of withered away nothing. They expect to be kind of mostly competitive throughout the entirety of the game. Um, and I think that expectation is just, it just kind of plays into it. Um, which is, you know, like I said, it's interesting, but I think you're, uh, you're, you're absolutely right there that, uh, the difference in difficulty can be, can make the game more fun. You know, it makes the game, gives the game that replayability aspect that you were talking about, right? Like mm. that you can play at different times or, you know, you can play every, every playthroughs unique rather is, is what I meant to express. Um, we've gotten kind of far away from, from mana, <laughs> um, yeah, like, I mean, you know, part of this is just, like, strategy games in general, I guess. Yeah. But, uh, mana sucks. If you're gonna if you're gonna put resources in your game, you need to give your players a lot of agency in how those resources are allocated and generated. That's my thesis. That's my big takeaway for this, you know, um, for this Yeah, no, I, I, think, I think that's absolutely correct. You gotta give them, and you gotta have it be impactful. That or your game has to be, like, like... Um, something, something that the the uh, I think it's ISAR production. No, ISAR production is a meme guy. It's not that guy. I'll link the video in the description for you all to watch if you want. But something else that he uh, he referenced was that this was a mechanic that's a holdover from a board game, mm-hmm. um, and it was re- it's reasonable in a board game. And part of that's technical, right? Like it's harder to, to do do the the more complicated things on a board game. Um, but another part of it too is that board games generally. Like a single campaign doesn't last for forty hours, right? And so, even if it's got these, like you know, if playing a game of Imperator even lasted, like say, like six hours, right? Um, I could it would probably be less oppressive or, or less 
of a problem because it would, you know, it would make sense inside of that inside of that time frame, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. it's you're not playing it for the same reasons. Um, but yeah, um, I guess I guess that's kind of the end of, the, the end of that discussion, eh? Uh, yeah, I guess it is. Uh, so tell me tell me all about tell me about your life. Tell me about your week. I hear you've been playing lots of Magic the Gathering. I have uh, Magic the Gathering Arena. Um, I have three decks that I'm working that I've been playing with, and the, the way I like to play Magic is I see a card that I want to build a deck around, so mm-hmm. I do, or like a concept I want to build a deck around, so I do. Um, and uh, my three decks are um, there's a Jace, there's Simic Ascendancy, and there's Persistent Partitioners. And uh, so the Jace card is. Um, I forget which, which what the name of the Jace is. Um, I can look it up. But essentially, the ability is is if you mill yourself out, you win the game, right? Um, the normal lose condition, which is if you go to draw a card and you don't have any cards left in the deck, um, uh, you lose, gets turned on its head. You, you win for it. Um, and so um, I call this my super friends deck. It's a name that was actually coined by a friend of the show, Josh. Um it's uh, it's it is. We've talked about Dave before, right? The Dave, the Dave psychographic. Yeah, I'm just like wanting to like fuck with people. Yeah, uh, the, the Jace, by the way, is Jace Wilder of Mysteries. Okay. Um, uh, and this is like a Dave deck through and through. It basically locks down your opponent to do nothing, um, including one of the pieces. This is called this is another Planeswalker Teferi, Hero of Dominaria, which. Um, the, the big ability on Teferi is, uh, minus eight, you get an emblem with whenever you draw a card exile, target permanent and opponent controls. So like eventually you get to the point where you're like pulling your opponent's lands off the board and they just have nothing. It's super satisfying when it goes off, but it takes forever and it, it's really frustrating to play against, right? Like this, this is a, this is a mean deck. I call it my war crimes deck. Sometimes I try not to use it too much, um, just because it is so obnoxious um uh and i you know that holds place in my heart but the, the ones that I, i'm a little bit more happy with are um simic ascendancy which isn't my most successful deck it's not great against aggro but simic ascendancy is let me just read it for you um whenever one or more plus one plus one counters are put on a creature you control put that many growth counters on simic ascendancy at the beginning of your upkeep if simic ascendancy has 20 or more growth counters on it you win the game so um, a lot of plus one plus one counter shenanigans, and there's this mechanic called proliferate, which is you can uh, essentially select any number of permanents, and uh, and basically if they have a counter <coughs> on them, you put another counter on them, right? So um, uh, this works like this. This is essentially double dips, right? If Simic Ascendancy has a growth counter on it, and I've got a plus one, a creature with a plus one plus one counter on it, and I proliferate, and I and I proliferate on both of them. The creature gets another plus one plus one counter, and the civic sense he gets a growth counter. But the plus the extra plus one plus one counter bumps another growth counter onto civic ascendancy. So, do you follow me? Yeah. So, you know, it combos kind of out of control pretty quickly, um, but not that quickly. Basically, not quickly enough to defeat a lot of aggro decks, but it's still a lot of fun. Um, and then the third deck is persistent petitioners, which this is this is a very silly deck. Um, uh, persistent Petitioners is a uh, mill deck. Uh, persistent Petitioners uh, is, it's got like a single mill ability, but the more interesting one is tap four untapped 
uh, advisors you control. Target player puts the top 12 cards of their library into their graveyard, and that can have any number of cards named persistent petitioners. Petition- persistent petitioners are advisors. Um, so basically, um, the entire like it's me just like mil- like pulling all sorts of persistent petitioners out on the field, and uh, uh, and they're the only advisors in standard right now. Um, I just double check that. Uh, and, uh, uh, it's basically getting them out on the field and just milling your opponent. It's actually pretty fast. And then I've got a couple other cards that, uh, that work with it, um, to, to make it a little bit better, but it's, it's, it's very silly. And when it goes off, it's really fun. Um, but yeah, that's, that's kind of been my, my magic stories, uh, for the last little bit. I've also been playing some division, Two, just getting back on that because it's neat. Um, and uh, what else have I been playing? Um, oh, I've been playing some Risk of Rain too with a fr- friend of the show, uh, Monik. Oh, I've uh, heard Risk of Rain is really cool. So the Risk of Rain one, I was a big fan of, um, a roguelike, and it was two D with some nice pixel art. Two, which was released maybe a month ago, it, it, it coincided with the announcement for uh, uh, Borderlands Three because it's. Mm published by gearbox i think um but that weekend it was a buy one get one and so um i gave an extra copy to monica we've been playing it's a 3d game it's roguelike and it's it's fun it's uh you know it's still early but it's it's uh it's 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 good relaxing fun um it's a lot of like you know i uh essentially you run around you have different characters that have different abilities including like primary weapons and you pick up items through the levels and you kill a bunch of stuff and then uh you you fight a boss and if you beat the boss you keep going you just keep going until you die um uh and the sessions are like you know like the longest one we had was like 40 minutes to an hour so Mm -hmm. it's 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 a good time uh yeah what what a what about you? How's, I mean, uh... I have mostly been playing Total War. I haven't been playing a lot of Hearthstone. And it's actually funny to hear you talk about these, like, Dave sort of frustrator decks. Um, because the that's kind of the state of Hearthstone in a certain sense. So, okay. So, to give you, to give you a snapshot, um, Hearthstone right now has a card in it called Raiding Party. Raiding Party is a three-mana rogue spell that says draw um, two pirates. And if you combo, you also draw a weapon. Rogue also has a weapon called Waggle Pick, which is a four mana, four two weapon um, that has Death Rattle, essentially Shadow Step, right? Return uh, a random minion on your side of the, a random friendly minion to your hand, it costs two less. These cards have generated an incredibly formidable tempo rogue deck that ju- that uses, you know, like you prep raiding party, you get, you know, the one mana two one charge if you have a weapon, right? Ha ha, right? That guy, Sassy Deckhand. Um, you get Captain Greenskin, he's a rogue. You get the the four mana three threes uh, that have taunt that lose, that the, their mana cost is reduced based on like the attack of your weapon and stuff like that. Um, and so it has created this really formidable Tempo Rogue package. The Tempo Rogue package has so much burst damage because Waggle Pick hits face and it bounces stuff. It can do this like huge burst combo where you Leroy Jenkins smack face with Leroy Jenkins, Waggle Pick face, that's 10 damage to face already, bounce Leroy Jenkins and then play Re- Leroy Jenkins again to smack face for a total of 16 damage on 8 mana in one turn, and all you have to do is have a 1 one health equipped waggle pick. It's very common for decks to lose against Tempo Rogue, is my point. But the one deck in the meta 
the one deck that can stand up to the onslaught of Tempo Rogue is Control Warrior. And Control Warrior is just at this point, I, this is my favorite, this is like my favorite way to play Control Warrior, and I'm a huge warrior lover, so this obviously makes a lot of sense for me, but like, it is, I will destroy every minion you put on the board. I will gain more armor than you can deal damage to me. I will outlive every swing turn. I will wipe every board. I won't even fatigue because there's a new card that counteracts fatigue. And I'm going to use it. And in fact, I'm going to use a youthful brewmaster. I'm going to use it twice if I need to. And it's this control warrior deck that has people so frustrated. Because and, and the funny thing is, it doesn't even have that great of a win rate, right? But like... um. It's one of those decks where, like, <laughs> like Disguised Toast rage quit the other day because he was playing against this Control Warrior deck and the Control Warrior was just beating him up. And he said, and, and he actually ended up winning the game, like, later because he came back. And he was like, the thing that frustrates me about Control Warrior isn't that I, you know, like, isn't that that game took forever, right? Or, and, and, it's, and it doesn't even feel good that I won that game on, like, turn 30 or whatever it was. And it, you know, or, like, that it was over after, like, 25 minutes. It was that I had to go through his entire deck just to see whether or not I was going to win this game. And so everybody is clamoring for nerfs to Rogan Warrior. I am a huge stand for Warrior, and I believe... The, the interesting thing is... Control Warrior only has a positive win rate against Tempo Rogue. It has, like, a 60% win rate against Tempo Rogue and a, like, 43% win rate against everything else. But all anybody wants to talk about is how frustrating it can be to play against Control Warrior. Well, so. that's, that, that is the the hallmark of the Dave deck, right? Yeah. Like, like my deck, when it goes off, it works. Um, this deck has actually a significant, significantly better win rate than I expected to. Um, not that it's like, you know, I have good stats or anything, but I just feel like I'm winning more with it than I should be. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but that's like, that's kind of like the, the, the classic, the classic Dave deck is, is very frustrating to play against and you, it probably loses anyway, but you hate yourself for having to do it. Um, yeah. I'm reminded of, of, of our legendary, uh, in-house game that got, that, that got half the people we played with the quit in-houses. Uh, where it was a 40-minute game where it was a Trolls versus Tryhards game where the Trolls had basically lost by 20 minutes, but they they pulled it out. They, 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 we dragged it out for another 20, 25 minutes, um, and it was just exhausting. We were having a blast, but, you know, after the game, it sounded like yeah. you guys were, were hated it. Uh, I honestly have, like, blocked that from my memory. <laughs> <laughs> I have to be honest. Like, I, I know this game exists. I know that I played it, but every time we hear about it, I feel like I'm hearing a story about, like, this mythical other buddy who went through the, an, an experience that I have no memory of. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah, the, I mean, the... I, I think, the, to be honest with you, I think the big problem is that um, the expansion actually pushed a... Okay, so, this is kind of like a control... This is like a control deck thing, right? Um, control decks want to control the game until they eventually just kind of... You know, their win condition comes online, they have run you out of stuff, and now they're going to play their big threat, and they're going to beat your face with it. I feel like the problem in Hearthstone has come about because people have realized that it is just more efficient not to put a win condition in your deck. 
and to essentially just fatigue out your opponent than to actually dedicate any cards in your deck whatsoever towards having an offensive play to win the game. Um, they actually released something with the expansion that was essentially tailor-made for a control warrior win condition. They released these bomb cards, right, that will shuffle a bomb in your opponent's deck, and when the opponent draws it, they take five damage to the face. So the whole idea is that, you know, Okay, you're going to play the control package. Your your deck is a control deck, right? You have board clears, you have card advantage, you have all the stuff that we expect of control decks. But you also have a bunch of cards that are going to shuffle 13 bombs in the opponent's deck or whatever it is, right? And those 13 bombs are just slowly, they're just slowly going to draw them. And eventually, they're going to draw the last one and they're going to die. But the thing is, is that people realize that the bomb package was just not efficient enough. And it was more efficient to run nothing as a win condition and just fill your deck with more defensive tools than to run defensive than than to run the offensive bomb cards um and so even though i'm a big lover of control warrior um i've been playing as much control warrior as i possibly can since the beginning of the expansion um and the most common deck that i have played in hearthstone's history right like the most time there the most time i spent before i kind of had like a year-ish sabbatical from Hearthstone was playing a Control Warrior deck um, in the, in the Grand Tournament, but even that had a win condition of okay, well, eventually you're gonna you're gonna chip damage and you're gonna sit on Grom and you're gonna use Grom Cruel Taskmaster and hit them in the face for twelve, right? And so you'll have, that that'll be your win condition. Alex Grom, Alex is Alex Straza. Set the opponent health to fifteen. Grom Cruel Taskmaster you know what, you're just going to smack them in the face and they're going to, and they're going to lose. We have since discovered that even putting in those cards is just not worth it. It is just more worth it to run more defensive cards and just let your opponent fatigue out. And fatiguing is just like a really shitty way to lose. Like forcing somebody else to fatigue is just like a really shitty way to lose the game. It just feels super unfun. So I feel like it is like a Dave of happenstance rather than a Dave of kind of malicious intent, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, you know, it's I mean, not like it's not like people who play this control warrior deck want to frustrate the other person. They are just kind uh, of. I'm going to severely doubt that. Um, well, I mean, maybe, but like, I'm not is, saying that you do. I'm saying sure. there are definitely people out there who are like, yeah, giggling. I, I, I definitely do think that people are out there. But and this is another one of those like water finds a crack sort of thing, right? Like, I right. feel like the water of you know, Control Warrior found the crack of, well, just don't run, just run right. 100%. It wouldn't be defense. as much of a problem if there was a viable win condition in there, right? You wouldn't yeah, have as, yeah. like, you might have, like, a handful of people running the, the super bitch-ass deck just to frustrate people. Mm -hmm. But, um, and, you know, maybe this rolls back into, my, you know, my super friend's deck. Um, it is still frustrating, but it's not as frustrating as, like, the first version of this deck that I ever made, which was unintentional but very Davy. Um, in that, uh, like it will push you towards a resolution of, of the, uh, of the match, uh, faster at some point, right? Like mm -hmm. it won't, it, it won't like the first version of the deck that I built was it had 64 cards in it. And, you know, you hoped that the other person drew out like before you did and didn't really do anything to, to mill the opponent. Um, this deck actually does pulls cards both out of my deck and, and out of their deck if I want to. And mm -hmm. so it eventually pushes you to that resolution, you know, still fairly slowly and still kind of frustratingly, but not so much that it... That yeah, in, in a certain it, sense, I actually sort of think we have, like, flip-flopped because what it used to be is that all of the decks running around were these fucking OTK decks. And you were in the position of... 
well, everyone's just, you know, like, you can never play a control deck because everyone's just going to run Mechathune whatever, and they're going to, their whole deck is just play a bunch of defense and draw, and they're going to draw their whole fucking deck, and then once their deck is empty, they're going to play Mechathune, na innervate, naturalize, and, you know, like, what, what, what do you fucking do against that kind of thing? Now, because we have gotten rid of all of those OTK decks, there's still technically a couple, but um, now because we've given, get, gotten rid of those OTK decks, we are just at a position where um, you can just value people out over time 100% defense and not really, like, worry about, like, the rest of it. Um, people are saying that there's going to be nerfs. I'm very afraid that they are going to nerf the wrong thing. Um but who knows? We'll see, I guess. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, oh we've got God. like... We need to talk, talk about Game of Thrones. Though. I was going to say, this is probably Game of Thrones hour. So I have yeah. watched through the uh, end of season five. I haven't watched anything the past couple of days because of various reasons. But um, where we last left, I believe it was midway through season four. Um, I think the end of season four is probably the best TV I've watched in a long, long time, maybe ever. Wow. Yeah, um, like the, the progression of like Tyrion's trial up through. Yeah, Tyrion's trial, the fight with Oberon. Um, just kind of the, that last episode of season four is pretty fucking intense, right? That's mm -hmm. Bran finding the wizard. That's um, Tyrion killing, uh, killing Tywin. Um, and Shay. Uh, and Shay, right. I forgot about Shay, yeah. Um, what else? Ha There's a couple other things that happen there too. There's, um, Arya going to, to Bravos, mm -hmm. um, or the, yeah, the to the oh, and the fight, and the fight between Brian and, Oof. uh, and the Hound. Yes. That does not I, happen in the books. That is the fight a between, show only thing. Yeah. Like, so I really like that fight if just because, you know, like it is dirty, it feels grimy, it yeah. feels bad. Like there's a lot of like. You know, in general media, kind of like valorization of of battle or whatever, mm -hmm. and this show does it a lot too. E even though it is a grittier show than most others, um, the battles aren't like you know. It's usually like a sword fight, and then somebody stabs somebody else. Right? Mm -hmm. This is just like knocked down. Weapons aren't working. People punching each other in the face, and it ends with like someone falling off a fucking cliff. Right? Like mm -hmm. it is, ah, uh, like. Very, very, like, so meaty, combined with, like, Arya leaving the Hound to die um, and walking away. Um, yeah, no, I, I know what ha I know that he doesn't actually die, so. Okay, And, you know, that's all, like, um, you know, that, like, so I, it still resonates there that she's leaving him to die. Mm -hmm. Like it's it just like lots of powerful emotion. Um, you know, I really like that episode. Um, by contrast, I liked season five, but not as much. Um, uh, I That's thought that I actually think season five might be maybe my favorite season. I don't know. It's tough. I really um, waffle on this a lot, to be honest with you. Like I wasn't like, so I liked some parts of the, um, Oh, what's the Martell storyline? Or what's the Dorn. island called? Dorn. Yeah, everybody I like fucking hates a Dorn. Well, so, me, but whatever. I like, I, I like the, the, the prince is played by the same guy who played Julian Bashir in Deep Space Nine. So I like clapped when I saw it. Um, literally levels of like, oh boy. And, you know, I thought that like, you know, there were some cool moments, right? Like fucking 
fucking uh what's it braun singing was like mm-hmm. i didn't expect that he's got a decent voice but then you know you've got things like um you know like you you need the good girl but or you want the good girl but need the bad pussy or whatever the the fucking line is oh i my just God. like it's like <laughs> stir- yeah, no, I get that. Really? Yeah. Um, and you know, like one of the things I really like about the show is that it's fairly unpredictable. Mm-hmm. But the moment that Bron was like poisoned in the cell and then wasn't like instantly, I was like, oh, that's how they're going to kill the princess, right? Like, oh wow, like okay. it, it, I didn't expect just, that, but fair enough. It, like. It screamed to me that, like, like that was loading the Chekhov's gun. It was like, that's, like, you know, to be fair, I didn't necessarily know that that was exactly how it was going to go down. But, like, I was like, this hasn't come into play yet. And then she she kissed the princess on the lips. I'm like, oh, that's that's what happened. Yeah, I really, like, the, the Dorn storyline is almost entirely cut from the from the book, which is to say the Dorn storyline in the books is almost entirely cut for the show. Um, in the books, Jamie never goes down. There's none of this stuff with Bronn. Dorn is doing things, but the things that they are doing are completely unrelated. Um, essentially, Dorn is, in Dorn, women can there's there's like equality. It's not primogeniture, so like women can be um, uh, like lords uh, who like rule stuff. And so the Dornish are prepping Marcella for a like a queen ship they're gonna they're gonna say marcella is the true queen um over tommen because joffrey is dead so she is like the next in line kind of thing and um, by the succession she counts yeah 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 and, and it hasn't quite all played out there is some awesome one of the cool things about the books is that ario hota who's the big black guy with the long axe the pole axe um is the pov character and he fights guys marcella there's a king's guard marcella brings a king's guard down to king's landing to like guard her and stuff like that um and uh Ario Hota and this fucking Kingsguard also have a really cool, like, fight scene that I was just like, God, man, they really fucking screwed the pooch on this by not including any of the stuff in the books, but uh, or from the books. But I understand why that, you know, it's kind of just like a play for time. It introduces a ton of new characters. Um, and it's just, like, really hard to keep track of, and so I kind of understand why they sort of excised it, um, yeah. as they the, say. The other part of it is there was, like, nothing from Bran. Uh, which you told me later that they had warned about, but it's just kind of like, how do you go a whole whole season leaving it on Bran looking at the dude? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, you know, that sucks. Bran gets some serious butt-kicking action in season six. Or not butt-kicking action, but just like serious cool stuff happening in season six. Um, but I think the thing that like makes me like season five so much is it is... Uh, it is simultaneously the spot where Daenerys runs into... We were talking before about how, like, Daenerys never seems to... You know, she just kind of, like, bulldozes over everyone. Uh, and never seems to get, like, the same comeuppance that other people get. Season 5 is where she gets that comeuppance, which I really like. And the politicking around Marine and how she's dealing with it. And, like, the her first real kind of, like, missteps of, like, okay... You know, I kind I was a conqueror, but now I'm going to try and be a ruler and kind of failing at it. Um, I that is part of the the stuff that I love. I'll t- I guess I could talk more about Daenerys a little bit later on. I have like an overall sort of theory of the case for why I think Daenerys is the best, and she is she is the Khaleesi. Um, 
And uh, and then the same sort of thing happens with John, right? Where you know John is put into a position where he, you know, like he is doing everything he possibly can to do what's right, um, but like it is tough and it is hard, and he is facing real consequences for making the decisions he makes. Like, ugh. Plus, I think Hard Home might be the best episode in the series, though I waffle on that a lot. I also which, think which is Hard Home. Ball. Hard home is when at the end of season five, when they go and evacuate the wildlings, and, Ooh, the, yeah, yeah. and the, that is entirely not from the books, right? In the books, John sanctions this mission, but he doesn't participate in it, so it happens off screen. And you actually, and there's a letter, like a Raven letter, comes in that talks about how everything went wrong at Hard Home because you know, like the undead attacked as the as the Night's Watch were like evacuating things, but it was like you know, it's one of those things where. You know, it's like it's like one of those points in a horror movie when you're watching like the, the character discovers a room with a bunch of cameras or something and they watch like the they watch one of their friends die. They are not in any danger, but the horror is on screen and they are experiencing it. That letter is like really haunting. Uh, it's like, you know, like dead things in the water, dead things, you know, the, oh, it's it's a whole thing. But so actually going to Hardhome and him having the 1v1 with the White Walker and that like final shot of the Night King just like raising everyone is just like, <laughs> good television. <laughs> like, yeah. damn. I also yeah, think that no, the show makes um, uh, a better case for John to become the uh the lord commander because of his the the whole thing in season four where he goes and he kills the mutineers at craster's keep is entirely a fiction of the show but i think it really makes it more believable in the um in the books john only wins lord commander as a fluke um because sam is convincing people to there's just like like sam is essentially running not like election fraud but like he's, it is between Dennis Malister and um, this other Thorn. guy. I don't actually think it was. It was between the Dennis Malister of the Shadow Tower and yeah, sure, sure, maybe it's um, Sir Alistair, right? Um, the and they and they are constantly hitting. Somebody needs to go over fifty percent in order to win. But like the top couple of candidates get bumped or something like that and so sam convinces both dennis malister's guys and alistair thorne's guys to vote for john as a way to bump the other off of the poll and they flub and john wins right because they they are both doing it without realizing that the other is doing it um and so that it adds a little bit of extra drama because, like, John isn't even really, like, a super legitimate. He doesn't have, you know, like, a mandate in the same way that he would right. in Game of Thrones. Um, but I think I just prefer the straightforward thing of, like, yep, John led the battle against the, you know, he the battle against the, the Wildling Army. You know, he led the battle against Craster's Keep. Um, he warned them about Egret and all these guys. Like, clearly this is a dude who has kind of, like, earned his leadership position, essentially. Um and you know, Charlie yeah, is a dude that gets that gets knifed in the heart for it. Yeah, no, I think that I, I uh, like I liked kind of the tension around around Thorn because like you know you get the sense that he's like 
you know, early on, he's kind of cartoonishly bad. You get the sense that like he's 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 you know he is attempting to do his best as well, right? Like, oh you know, yeah, that he's whole kind thing of an asshole. In the, yeah, that whole thing. So, Watchers of the Wall, which is the big battle that's all at the wall in season um, four, episode nine, is also I think one of the best episodes of the Game of Thrones. I it kind of falls a little bit under hard home because I don't like the end of it where like you know john goes and then it bumps to the next episode and then in like the first 10 minutes of the next episode you know like stannis just kind of like wins or whatever that's that's how it happens in the books and everything like that and it's you know like it's fair but it is a little bit anticlimactic but that part in watches on the wall where he's talking to john he's just like do you know what being in charge is it's where every shit has a second guess in your opinion and if you doubt yourself then you're fucked or whatever like that's the alice Thorne that i really appreciate who's just like loathes everyone and thinks they are all garbage but he doesn't give a fuck because he's gonna defend this castle um so yeah yeah um uh, the, the other big moment in season five that like really like kind of like like tugged at me was 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 uh, the the burning of Shireen, um, all Oof. for it to just be nothing, right? Like, oh, oh that one that one is tough because in the books Stannis is not dead, um, which is a big deal, right? People think that in the books Stannis is going to li- you know like live past this, he's not going to get wrecked in the Battle of Winterfell, all these other sorts of things. I feel like the writing's on the wall for Stannis, my man. But Stannis is funny because I think he attract. he is like a particular politician. So, okay, so when I was talking about like different kings or whatever that people like favor, um, you know, there are, there were always people who were like, you know, in the Stark camp, just like, oh, Rob, but then Rob dies. Um, and, and you kind of got left at the end of book five with like a couple of different camps. I'm, I'm the kind of person that thinks Daenerys is, is the best. Um, there are people who talk about, <coughs> you know, there are people who talk about, uh, even Tommen and Marjorie, right? You know, like Marjorie clearly cares for the small folk and stuff like that. All you got to do is get rid of Cersei, X, Y, Z, um, and uh, and there but like on reddit specifically something about stannis uh, really appeals to like redditors because everyone everyone was in stannis's camp it seemed like on reddit right so like on twitter or tumblr or whatever you would find all these other but like boy oh boy was it stannis the manis 100% of the time on reddit and so when he died they were so furious because everyone expected that he was going to end up on the iron throne um yeah and people were also mad because they were like he would never burn shireen that's completely out of character and i was like boy i don't know what fucking show you were watching but absolutely that was inside of his character yeah it was inside of his character but it was like a big kind of push right because he clearly loved shireen right like the thing the thing that bothered me the most about that is 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 um the mom killing herself, right? Mm. Like, the mom not accepting it because she, like, hated Shireen for, mm. like, a long time. I honestly expected that to be kind of, like, she sets, like, she's the one that, like, gets her onto the pyre and Stannis just kind of, like, wait, what? And, like, just lets it happen or something. Like, you know, this is part of the thing that I love about the show is, like, half of me expected, like, maybe Sir Davos to, like, have stuck around and, like, tried to stop it or something and gotten himself killed for it or whatever. Like, that was something that, that could have reasonably have happened, I think, mm-hmm. in in the show. Um, but, you know, it, it didn't. Um, by the way, ever since I've heard Stannis the Menace, I just hear, like, you know the Dennis the Menace theme song? Like, Dennis, <laughs> yeah. I just hear, like, Stannis the Menace <laughs> in my head. 
<laughs> that's funny. Wow. Yeah. That's that's hilarious. Oh, and then there's also Sansa. Yeah, season five lost a lot of people because of the Sansa storyline, which is also book or which is also show only. In the book, Sansa is still like dicking around in the veil, um, and the character who goes and weds Ramsay is do you, do you remember Jane Poole? She's in like the first season a tiny bit. Which S- mm. Sansa has a friend from Winterfell named Jane Poole, and um, and essentially the Boltons and the Lannisters are claim that Jane Poole is Arya Stark when she isn't, um, and so Ramsay weds quote unquote Arya Stark, um, and th- so all of the stuff that happens with Sansa and Winterfell is not supposed to happen with Sansa and Winterfell in in like book to show terms or whatever, um, and that's sort of because um, Arya's still love. pretending to be Baelish's niece or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah, and and so and it also it, you know I actually kind of uh, empathize with this frustration. Ramsay is kind of like the opposite of a Mary Sue in the in the sense that he's like a villain that is too competent um, for his own good, if that makes sense. Uh, Who, who's just, this? Sorry, Ramsay. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. The meme that got made out of this is twenty good men because. Um, Ramsey, like Ramsey and his twenty good men, were able to like burn Sanus's stores or whatever, so that he couldn't do a siege uh, of Winterfell, and like it caused all those sellswords to desert and everything, and like really just kind of, um, you know, made the made the that that battle a, an easy win or whatever. I do think that there is a certain amount of that where like Ramsey is kind of like hyper competent because Game of Thrones is so kind of like mean and ruthless to its. Uh, to, like, its protagonists, right? So, like, the deck is always kind of stacked against the protagonist, which can feel a little bit good, but, like, it also seems like the, the person who's getting lucky all the time is Ramsey. Um, and season five was really a big pinnacle for, like, you know, God, Ramsey is, you know... It sucks how, how good Ramsey is at this um, as, like, a frustration point. Makes sense. Um... Yeah, no, I, I don't know, Ramsey. I, I, you know, all feels like he's he's like perpetually like, n- like outside. Like you know, he, he's about to get his like he's about to get his due at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what is it? Um, the only the, the only the last thing I kind of want to comment on is um like Baelish and Varys the Spider as kind of um like the same type of character like like you know. Mirrored over kind of like a, you know, most, you know, like fairly good, fairly evil kind of mm-hmm. line. Yeah. Um, I just re- like, you know, like Baelish is an asshole. Um, also something about his accent that I find oddly charming. His accent, um, his accent is famous for being really bad because it changes a lot. Uh, Aiden Gillen, I think is Irish and he just has a really tough time sticking to one accent. So they're like videos that completely, they like, sure. on it. they don't complain the, about the, it, it, but it's fine. But like, there's this, like when he's getting really serious, it like, it sounds like somebody trying to suppress an Irish accent, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, or like trying to like, like an Irishman trying to do an English accent mm-hmm. where it's got this like, like edge on it that I just like find charming. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, he's such a bastard and I love it. Um, uh, and then, like, Varys, who's kind of, like, you know, also very tricky, also very kind of, like, but he's also, like, ultimately a good guy, right? Like, he's, mm-hmm. he's, a, he's you know, like, I think my, one of my favorite scenes in the entire show is um, Varys 
telling the story of how he lost his balls um, as he's unpacking the crate with that dude in it, right? Yeah, like, yeah that is something that was, like, ter- that, that was crazy. Um, Varys is also very interesting. I really like the conversation he has with Ned um, for both of their sakes, right? Like, I really love Ned's line, like, oh, do you think my life is something, is some precious thing to me? I learned to die a long time ago, or whatever it was, you know, because I was raised with soldiers, fucking Sean Bean. But when Varys is like, I don't serve this queen or that queen, I serve the realm, right? I feel like that is, it's such a simple concept, but it's something that gets so lost um, by, like, all of the big major players of Game of Thrones that I really appreciate that Varys is like, stop being such a dick, you guys. <laughs> like, Well, but that, that really throws the tragedy of Ned Stark into, into relief, right? Because, like, yeah. he would be a great king on the Iron Throne, and if he would just reach out and take it because he's the best person for the realm, mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, this entire, you know, the, the show ends at season one, right? But he won't because he's too honorable. And Varys is kind of like, oh, what a shame. You know, like... Yeah, he, it's not I even guess- that. It's also, like, all he has to do is back Renly, right? All he has to do is serve as, as King Regent and, and, like, everybody basically counsels him away from his course of action. Um, right. He just, and- needs, he just needs to take, you know, his own... Like, he needs to, like, take either for himself or, like, back the slightly wrong candidate, mm-hmm. right? Like, or, you know, you know, just not be nice to Cersei, right? Like, Yeah, for real. Yeah, people talk about that as his big mistake, right? Like, he wants Cersei to get out of the capital because he doesn't want to have, like, the bloodshed of children on his hands or whatever. Which I think is, you know... No, it's it's, like, it's 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 what fundamentally makes Ned Ned, right? Like, yeah. he is honorable to a fault. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I really like it, right? Like, you know, it's, 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 you know, and Ferris is a great kind of like, you know, I'm going to do what needs. To... The, the only thing that frustrates me about the Daenerys maybe taking the the throne eventually is the kind of like the implication that like you know, you know, you know, the, the problem was is that you took the rightful Targaryen Targaryen off the throne, and it should have always been a Targaryen in the first place, right? And it's not quite exactly that. But it's kind of like you can't tell me that the end result of this is that you know, of course you shouldn't you know uprise against a, you know a violent madman. You, you, the blood must be on the throne, type of thing. Um, yeah, I mean that is uh, kind of the part of it is a deconstruction of that sort of thing, right? Like George, R. have I told, have I talked about this in the cast before? George R. R. Martin talks about that where he talks about how like in Lord of the Rings, kings of good character, or, like, kings are good or bad based on their personal character, and he finds that to be a flaw, right? Which is, like, you know, the fourth age begins and Aragorn is a good king, right? But, like, what is Aragorn's tax policy? Um, And so he's talked a little bit about sort of threading that needle where it's, like, okay, you have certain people who are, like, vying for the throne, right? And they are vying for based on whatever, you know, like, whatever birthright not birthright they have um but like what are the like what are the politics and policies of these people that make them successful or unsuccessful in attaining that if that makes sense um which is part of what i like about daenerys sticking around in marine right like she's dedicating the time to learn to be a ruler and facing real comeuppance you know what i mean where it's like okay well the sons of the harpy are here i'm dealing with this huge insurgent you know like force i oh oh fuck i don't how much of the sons of the harpy stuff happens in season five i can't even remember so so this is you you let me know if this 
so it, it ends with them attacking, uh, like, she flies away on her dragon. Like, oh, Dro- right, right, Drogon. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, Drogon shows back up. So just to put a point on that, because I wanted to bring this up, is one, I think Drogon is the stupidest name. But two, um, <laughs> uh, two I am so relieved that her her kind of, her husband that she's taking, that he gets, you know, I wish he hadn't been stabbed by the Sons of the Harpies, but... It is relieving to me that he does because it at least it means that he wasn't in on it, which is something that I really wanted, like him to be sincere. Um, and don't tell me that's if that's a, not true anymore. Let my let my heart be crushed if that gets turned in, around. No, you, you are correct. In the show, he is not in on it. In the books, he is though. In the books, he orchestrates okay. the whole thing. He tries to poison her at that. They, so in the books, there's this character named Strong Belwas. It's like a kind of like a sumo wrestler and he's like a gladiatorial champion who like serves she has like a little queen's guard um and uh and there's these like honey roasted crickets that get served to her at the at the thing but strong bellwas is such a fat ass that he eats all of them before they get to daenerys and then he gets really sick um and so it turns you know like it turns out that his daughter zolorak is like poisoned the crickets to try and like take back control of the city or whatever. Um, he doesn't die there. He actually lives onward and into the Marine plotline. But in the show, uh, I don't see any reason to see that he is not absolutely sincere. All that stuff with his dad is also invented. They basically reinvented his whole character in the show. So yeah, I agree I, with you. It, yeah. I think, I think it is better by the way, if he is sincere. Yeah. There's a moment where like, he's like just making, like he sits down next to Nerys and he's like just making sure that everything is ready. And I'm like, Oh no. But then they stab him, so you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then uh, the, so the the thing I was talking, I wanted to talk about was the moment where she executes. Fuck, what is his name? Uh, she executes like the slave guy that really hates the masters because he orchestrated a hit on like the masters or whatever, and all of the and so you know she's like on the walls of Marine or whatever, um, and all of the slaves are calling out to her like Misa, Misa, and then. She directs Dario, I think, to behead the guy, um, and they instantly turn to hisses, and that it's like a mini like Ed, like Ned Stark moment for Daenerys, right? Where she realizes that like, yeah, sometimes doing the wrong, the right thing is kind of doing the wrong thing, um, and is like not the smart political choice because not she never had the support of the masters, but she absolutely had the support of the slaves, and then she instantly lost the support of the slaves, kind of thing. And so all of that stuff, I feel like, is the interesting piece of you know. I think uh, the only thing that would have made it better is if she had done the Ned Stark thing and cut off his head himself. Yeah. Um, but you know, maybe that's a lesson that she learns later. Um. Or also, she didn't have Ned Stark as a dad to tell her to <laughs> execute your own people. Yeah, for um, real. I which, mean, uh, you know, execute John John Snow executes fucking uh, God. Who's that huge piece of shit that comes from? Yeah, the one that hides, hides in the larder with the Kingsguard guy. Yeah, yeah, I can't remember his name, but he's such a piece of garbage. Yeah, um, Jano Slint. Jano Slint. Yeah, because John executes Jano Slint. Theon executes Roderick. It's just like, oh God. Um, in season two. Rob executes Rickard Karstark. Basically, everybody gets their big, like, execution moment. Um, yeah, except um, everybody that executes their own person gets fucked up. Yeah. So maybe, maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe you should start yeah. worrying. Fair enough. I mean, Joffrey also dies, so really, yeah. oof, Daenerys. <laughs> yeah, well, she dodged a bullet, right? She, yeah. she had a... <laughs> she dodged a bullet. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, that, that whole thing with Daenerys is actually very uh, abbreviated. Um, in the books, for instance, um, like in the books, it's funny because Marine is under siege while she is doing this, uh, or like immediately after um, she like leaves. She she's like legitimately at war with these guys, and Marine gets like under siege. But it's really funny in like a in like a cosmic sort of way because like the dysentery hits all of like the besieging mercenaries this is where jorah and Tyrion are they're like a member of a mercenary company besieging marine like against uh against daenerys and we they don't even end up seeing daenerys at all um in the books and uh and so the like the whole all of the besieging armies are getting absolutely destroyed by dysentery um while you know while the city is trying to like be de- defended they go in a very different direction in the books uh from some of this marine stuff but the but the big core parts of it is all there um it, so like it, wait, how does how do jorah and Tyrion end are they just like where, where are they at the end of the i guess it's the last book jorah is a really bad slave he's a he so he's a slave uh and he i don't think he's meant to fight in the pits right um because he gets to marine after like the thing but he joins um do you remember how dario talks about like the storm crows uh and like the, the other mercenary groups he gets all three mercenary groups i can't remember their names the storm crows the second sons and something else um the storm crows like defect to the to the besieging armies and Tyrion and Jorah get bought as mercenaries by the Stormcrows, um, and so that's where they are left off in the books. Okay, because um, I, I am I am actually excited for you know Tyrion doing policy because you know like he said he was good at being the hand, mm-hmm. um, uh, while while Jorah and uh, and uh, Pretty Boy go try and find Daenerys yeah Tyrion who... is really interesting I mean we'll, we'll talk more about Tyrion I guess when you get further up because you know obviously now he has left the part where he has left um uh and I don't want to spoil anything but uh but yeah so now we've talked a whole bunch about Game of Thrones good job yeah no, <laughs> I, I, I need to I need to go um so uh if you'd like to tell us what you think about season 4.5 to 5 of Game of Thrones or mana and grand strategy games or any of the other things we talked about on this podcast, you can email us at some dirt play games at gmail.com or podcast. Excuse me. Podcast at some dirt play games.com. Um, follow us twitch.tv slash, uh, some play games. Um, leave us a review, uh, check out our website. It's the dirt play games.com. I don't know all those other good things, but do you have anything else you want to promote? I have nothing else. I'm looking to promote in that case until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.